What follows is material that, while considered extraneous to the narrative of the fiddler's gun, may be of some interest to the reader wishing to discover what mysteries lie just beyond the boundaries of the story proper. Said material refers chiefly to the arrival of the Salzburger Germans in the New World and their subsequent founding of the Ebenezer settlements. Also included is a brief and chilling account of the vocal terrors that Sister Carmeline is known to have visited upon the orphans in her care, as well as an accounting of select and sundry details surrounding the life of the Ebenezer Orphan House itself. A Brief Account of the Salzburger Flight, the Orphan House, and an Unsettling Songstress The Salzburgers, as they came to be called, hailed from far Germany. They fled the bloody wake of Martin Luther's 95 Theses when the Catholics of Salzburg took it in mind that excommunication was too good for their Protestant brothers in Christ and determined that killing them off was a more proper solution, if not exactly scriptural. This Protestant remnant of Salzburg embarked on a long exodus across Europe, through England, and landed itself at last upon the promised land of a place called Georgia. The place they founded they named Ebenezer from the Hebrew for stone of succor. But like the Israelites of old, the Salzburgers learned that the world had plenty of pain and trouble left to offer, even after the exodus. The first winters in the New World aligned themselves with scurvy and dysentery to rob them of half their number right off the boat. Such heavy losses moved them to abandon that first settlement, and once more they went to the wilderness, down to the river, the Savannah River, and they found a new place, a better place, along its high green banks. They tried again, calling it New Ebenezer. The world and the weather whittled them down to the quick, and what it left behind was a hard, determined people, and a lot of orphans. The Ebenezer Orphan House was the first to lay its foundations in America. It sat upon a small knoll on the south bank of the Savannah River, and looked east toward the sea like some age-old wooden battlement of the fatherland, commanding the attention of all the nearby woods. The children, to whom the world itself is a place of giants and wonders, saw it in far greater terms than any of its architects could have dreamed. By the mouths of castaway babes it was christened the Castle, for unlike the orphans of the old world, those in this new one had only tales and stories of such ramparts to quicken their imaginations. The most impressive structure and the chief battlement of the fortress was the chapel. It was made of pine timber and rose to a sharp steeple set atop the bell tower. Inside lay ten rough benches, without backs, of course, to dissuade the temptation of napping during vespers. There was no pulpit, for the chapel had no preacher, though from time to time itinerant speakers of varying renown graced the podium. Near the front door was a narrow ladder that led up to the bell tower, but from its hollow no toll rang. Bells suitable for calling the Lord's worship were found to be too costly for the small town, and so for all its many years the tower stood conspicuously empty. Surrounding the chapel lay the lower fiefdom of its little kingdom. The dining hall flanked the left, a small building that could only be called a hall in the most removed of fashions. Indeed, there was nothing grand or impressive about the building itself, made as it was of pine logs cut from the surrounding wood and harboring a cooking area at the rear filled with all manner of potions and reagents with which the cook, Brother Bartimaeus, invoked culinary magic three times a day. Set in the center of the hall, however, was the one thing that broke up the monotony of its rough wood and stone a long dinner table of polished red cedar. The red and vanilla grain of the wood played together along its length, like bread dipped in wine. 
Every morning before the meal, Brother Bartimaeus hovered over the table, polishing it with beeswax, muttering to himself of the small nicks, scuffs, and scratches left by the previous day's dining. He'd rub them furiously until all was shine again, and then disappear into the kitchen to work his craft. Directly behind the chapel sat the actual orphan house. Much like the dining hall, it was of log construction and had a fireplace at either end to chase off the assault of a chilly night. The lower, boys' floor was only accessible from the north end, and the upper, girls' area, only from a stair at the south. Ten straw beds marched down the length of each floor, five to a side, and nearly every inch of the lower interior was carved and whittled at by boys with too much energy to sleep. There was a stable for the wagon and horses, a chicken coop, and of course the headmistress's chambers, and the whole of the compound was guarded well by a high surrounding fence that obscured the view to all but the empty bell tower. When Hilda and Carmeline Babb crossed from Germany in 1748, they brought with them dreams of starting over and raising their children in Protestant fashion without the menace of the Pope lingering at the back door like a wolf. But the Georgia Wild claimed the Babb men in the first winter and made widows of them both. So the Babb sisters took charge of the orphan house. The first orphans in their care were Salzburger Germans, but the good graces of Sister Carmeline didn't let her turn down a child. Soon there were children at the castle from backgrounds as different as the whole of Europe and the colonies. Each day after breakfast, the sisters herded the children into the chapel for morning prayers. Aside from prayers, this service consisted of Sister Carmeline terrifying children, which is to say, singing. She'd pitch a tidy devotion to the captive congregation, and then the tone of her voice would take on a subtle change hinting to the orphans that she was about to break into song. Every child in the room bristled and squirmed when they caught wind of it, darting their eyes about like trapped animals, desperate for a means of escape. Then she'd open her mouth and confirm all fears. This morning I'd like to sing you a song, one the Lord has blessed me with. A sharp intake of breath would split the air as the room full of children braced themselves for the coming onslaught. Fists would clench. Shoulders stiffen and faces quiver, some on the verge of tears. Then it would happen. The first notes would break on the fold like a wave, a wave that smothers you and drags you straight to the bottom of the sea. To Sister Carmeline, all the quivering and quaking in the pews looked suspiciously like the manifest of the Holy Ghost, and so she'd praise God and sing all the more. In the aftermath of the song, she'd ask her congregation to bow their heads in prayer. It really didn't matter what Sister Carmeline prayed about because no one ever heard it. Every soul in the chapel was too busy thanking God that the singing was over and begging the Lord to spare them an encore. Quite possibly, Sister Carmeline's singing saved more souls than her sermons ever did. Her singing, you see, brought many a young man and woman close to the Lord, much as soldiers on the battlefield often find salvation in the face of their own mortality. On a few dreadful occasions, Sister Carmeline felt especially blessed and passed that on to those in attendance in the form of a second song to dismiss the children to their daily chores. And on at least one occasion, this caused nine-year-old Deli Martin to faint cold. After retreating from Carmeline's singing, it was time for chores, and while normally dreaded by children, chores seemed almost an escape for the orphans at the castle. They'd come fleeing out of the chapel like scared goats and head straight for the nearest broom or water bucket or feed pen, throwing themselves at their work as if trying madly to erase some terrifying vision from their minds. Chores, however, were the domain of Sister Hilda, and hers was another form of combat altogether. Now, Hilda wasn't all monster and no mouse, 
She managed to be positively pleasant during school studies. There was something in the act of teaching that seemed to calm the beast inside of her. She'd talk passionately for hours about history, grammar, and mathematics, and seemed to grow larger with the imparting of information, as if she could somehow straighten her crooked body simply by the filling of young minds. But no child lived long without learning that pleasant during class in no way implied pleasant during chores. The raising of orphans is a business of controlling the chaos that a storm of children tends to muster, and if the castle was often the site of storms, then the dining hall was certainly the eye, and Brother Bartimaeus its keeper. He didn't so much cook as work magic on food. A squawking chicken would disappear from the coop into the back of the dining hall, and a few hours later that chicken would be miraculously transformed into the smell of home. Hints of rosemary and onion would come wafting out of the hall and find their way into every last nostril in the castle. Yes, Brother Bartimaeus was a master of the cookpot, and when the place fell under his spell, all sins were forgiven for a time. Arguments would end, enemies would truce, and enmity turned to amnesty, all for the love and savor of supper. Such was the state of the world into which Phinea Button found herself fallen as a babe, and such was the place that raised her up to be the woman she became, whether for good or ill. And from that same did she sail away years later, her heart all torn and somewhat twisted by the great deep sea ahead and the ruin and flames behind. <laughs>